This episode of Accelerate is brought to you in part by Discover.org. Looking to close four times as many deals in half the time? Discover.org's industry-leading human-verified sales intelligence gives you all of the data and insights like direct dials, org charts, planned projects, verified emails, and executive moves. You need to stop wasting time on research and spend more time talking to the right decision maker with the right message at the right time. Their team of 250-plus sales researchers do all the work so that you don't have to. 2,500 companies are already using Discover.org to win more deals. So check them out at www.discoverorg.com. That's www.discoverorg.com. It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 560 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I'm excited about today's show. Joining me on this episode is Steve Martin. No, not that Steve Martin, but this Steve Martin. Steve Martin, the technology sales author, sales researcher. He's the founder of Heavy Hitter Sales Training and on the faculty at University of Southern California, USC. And coming back with Steve on the show for the second time is Katie Bullard. Katie is the chief growth officer at Discover.org. Now, Discover.org collaborated with Steve on his recent research into buying behaviors, business-to-business buying behaviors. And together, they produced a report titled, Why Didn't They Buy? A Deep Dive into Buyer Preferences and Implications for Salespeople. You know, it's a fascinating look at B2B buyers in a wide range of industries and how they perceive the value of salespeople that they deal with and what it means for all of us personally in sales. And there are some really surprising findings from the research, in particular one about selling to enterprises with multiple stakeholders that may be pretty different than, than what you've been hearing and reading about in the last couple of years. So you definitely want to check this out. And later in the show, we'll give you directions on how you can download a copy of the report for free for your own your own reference. Now, if you'd like to see summary notes of this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 560. As always, we provide a timestamp to break down of this and all conversations on Accelerate. In case you missed it at the beginning of the show, this episode is brought to you in part by our great partner, Discover.org. Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales, marketing, and staffing professionals. You know, this feature-rich platform is supported by 250 plus researchers who continually update the contact data and provide account specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack so see the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo that's discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo I know I mentioned yesterday that Amazon had lowered the price on my second book, Amp Up Your Sales, Powerful Strategies That Move Customers to Make Fast, Favorable Decisions. Check this morning. The price is still still low. So you want to make sure you jump on this opportunity and grab it. It's normally priced at $3.99. It's now available for $7.99. And Amp Up Your Sales was on HubSpot's list of the 20 best sales books of all time. And if you want to learn precisely what you need to do, to maximize the value you deliver to your prospects on every single sales interaction, then this is the book for you. So make sure you go and order it today. That's Amp Up Your Sales on Amazon, only $7.99. Now, before we get to the interview, just finally, I want to make sure I remind you that always looking for your questions about sales, how we can help you with sales, or your suggestions about specific topics you want me to address on the show or guests that you recommend we have on the show. So need you to send me an email about that. If you can do that today, that's great. Just send it to Andy at ZeroTimeSelling.com. So that includes your suggestion, your question, or your recommendation for a guest. All right, let's jump into the interview. 
Join me today, Steve Martin and Katie Bullard. Welcome to Accelerate. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having us. Andy, it's great to be here. And just so people know, this is, I imagine it's probably not the only time people say, is this the Steve Martin? I, I've only heard that 10 times today, Andy. <laughs> it, is, it is the Steve so, Martin. So how much of a burden has that been for you in your life? It's actually a very positive thing because it's a, it, it, it actually, when people hear that name, they get a smile on their face. So it causes a positive receptive state. But I do have to go with the name Steve W. Martin. That's my website address as well, because if you go to Steve Martin, you're going to the comedian. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you're both in the LA, LA area. I wonder, like, you ever showed up at the same spot at the same time? No, but when I do make a, uh, a reservation at a restaurant, they're always disappointed when I arrive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could fix that with hair color and so on. So, yeah. All right. So, well, Steve, since you're new to the show, I'm going to ask this question of you. It's uh, Katie's actually answered it before. And standard question I ask guests at the beginning of the show is what, in your opinion, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? You know, I, if I were to narrow it down to one thing, I, I would probably say today um, the customer's uh, attention span. I'd say it's attention span because when you think about it, attention spans have been shortening for years because of the, you know, the, the, the influence of technology in our lives. And so now the whole world is driven by sound bites and 30-second blurbs. And so it impacts, I think, a salesperson's ability to get that initial meeting. And then for sure, it impacts their ability to, to drive and get momentum through a sales cycle. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge right now. Okay. That's our sobering on a 30-minute podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we're going to cop- – topic conversation today is, is uh, a report that Steve – was the primary researcher and writer on that's sponsored by Discover Org, entitled "Why Didn't They Buy: A Deep Dive into Buyer Preferences and the Implications for Salespeople." So, to sort of give us some background on the project, uh, Katie Bullard, uh, tell us about it. Sure. So, here at Discover Org, you know, our goal is to help our customers grow. It's to give sales and marketing teams the data that they need to be able to prospect more effectively. And typically, within our platform, that is. You know, it's company data, contact data, but I think we see that mission as being much broader than that. And uh, one of the things that we always hear from from customers, from our own sales team, our own marketing team, right, is that the reasons that people decide to buy or not buy are very complex. They aren't that just that you know I had the best email pitch or that I had the best product. And um, and we've we've worked with Steve in the past. He's an amazing um, mind when it comes to really understanding the sales process, the buyer reaction to the sales process. And so what we wanted to do was work with Steve to do this survey to really understand by different buyer persona, by different industry, you know, how do different people, how do different buyers react to salespeople differently? And in turn, how should that impact the way that that sales folks in those professions or selling to those industries or buyers should adjust the way that they they interact? And I think that's exactly what we got out of this survey. Um, and so we, you know, our, again, our goal was to share it with our customers, to share it with the market at large, so that as a salesperson, I can figure out: Do I need to adjust, or how do I how do I interact with my buyer in a way that's going to help me? build more pipeline and close more deals. And Andy, if I can just add another sure. comment, um, you know, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of organizations 
as a sales effective consultant and sales trainer. And uh, I became aware of Discover.org through my clients. And my clients absolutely rave about their data accuracy. So that's how this this whole project came about is uh, just that, you know, my clients continually say, hey, we're using Discover.org. It provides the best, most accurate data. And so that's how this project came into uh, being. Okay, good, good. All right, it's good background. So I thought, let's just start at the beginning. The, the sort of interesting point drawn out in the summary was that you're saying in the uh, majority of interviews that buyers basically ranked all feature sets among competing products as being equal, which suggests, as as we have sort of alluded to, but has often been talked about on this show, is that you know it's factors other than product that really separate the winners from the loser. You know, you know, that, and that's an interesting point, Andy, because you know, on the other side of my research, you know, I've interviewed, I've studied thousands of sales cycles for my clients and win loss studies. I've interviewed thousands of salespeople. And, and this study is actually taking it from the buyer's perception of how they're evaluating uh, you know, solutions, vendors, and salespeople. So that's what makes it so fascinating for me personally. And when you think about product differentiation, it, it, it is at an all-time low. In every segment I work in, whether it's technology or finance or consulting, it, you, know, it, it, you, can look, you can literally go on the websites of the competing products or the competing solutions and interchange the wording and it will read the same. Sure. So, so from the customer's mind, you have to think about it. It's very confusing. <laughs> they get confused because they're hearing a plethora of information, some of it contradicting each other. And so the sales cycle is really, is really the exchange of information and the ferreting out of the truth. And that's what the, that's what the prospective buyers you know, all about. Well, and so a question to that end is, is, before we jump into sort of the six main topics you have on the report, is, is you know, there is sort of a contrary point of view, which is that, you know, we talk about the buying environment being more complex for, for customers, and there's, you know, overwhelm, all this information, and so on and so forth. But, you know, there are people out there writing that saying, well, you know, actually maybe the opposite is true, is that, you know, the access to all the tools we have, starting with Google to you know, software review sites like G2 Crowd and and so on, is that that um, actually, you know, buyers are pretty pretty capable of navigating this and and uh, sort of ferreting out, as we talked about, at least to to some level. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that statement as sure. well. And that's what makes that's what makes sales so so fascinating. Is you know, for example, one of the one of the main findings from this report is the real influence of the internet and how and how buyers. Uh, use the internet in the different stages of the sales cycle. Now, now to get back to your question, Andy, I think it's it's important to understand, you know, that in 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 our world, in Andy, in your and my world, it's easy to make a generalization based upon you know something we see at a client site. But what I've learned through the years is that there's that there's such there's so many unique attributes of any individual cell. You know, there's a difference between an enterprise sale that's sold across an organization, all levels of the organization, and a very point-specific sale, a more simpler sale sure. that's from one department to one person. So, it, it, if, so I'm, I, I tend to agree with all sides in that, that <laughs> it is very, you know, when I hear sales experts, even myself sometimes make a, a broad generalization, I want to say, you know, your mileage may vary because there are so many unique attributes. And that is the fundamental aspect that I think is so fascinating about this report is that 
Um, the, the varieties of points of view depend upon the types of industries you're in and the departmental uh, influences. And, and there's very big influences between the departments. In fact, while Katie and I were discussing this report, uh, conducting this report, Katie had some you know, f- philosophical aspects to that, saying, hey, this is an important part of sales. Do you want to comment on that, Katie? Yeah. In fact, I was just going to mention, you know, at Discover Org, we sell to two different departments. We sell to the sales department and we sell to the marketing department. I sort of had this hypothesis before we went into this report or before we went into the study that that um, that our salespeople were sort of selling to those two departments in a very similar fashion. And yet we don't buy in in, a, in a, an entirely similar fashion. And I think that's exactly what the study bore out. So it's been actually helpful for us to think about how do we approach a sales department differently than we approach a marketing department. Um, and I think most companies out there are like that to, to, to the point that you, you know, you brought up earlier where this, the, the environment is more complex than ever. There are more technologies that sort of bleed lines between departments that when I've got five or six people making, you know, influencing or making a decision on, on what I'm trying to sell, like I have to know how to speak and react and interact with, with my sales buyer differently than with my marketing buyer differently than with my IT buyer. Well, all you have to do is find the bully with the juice. <laughs> so, and we'll get to we'll get to that so people understand that that reference later on. But but I think that it, I think it goes a, a step even deeper than that though. Is and I think that one things we're doing in sales that that in an effort to sort of say yeah we have to sell differently to marketing versus sales is, is that and it's on one hand it's very useful we develop personas right this is who the people are selling this is how we're going to message to these type of people. But what that does is I think to some somewhat perversely, is it actually encourages more rigidity in how we sell. And that people think, okay, this is the person I'm selling to. And as a result, they don't open their eyes and their minds to what the individual, right? Let alone the company or the department by type, but the individual is different than any other individual they sold to. And this is where I see salespeople have a really hard time reacting because they sort of don't get it, right? Well, I'm following the steps. And this is how I'm supposed to sell to this persona, but it's not working. Yeah, Andy, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, and I think that, you know, as, as I mentioned in the report, um, you know, when you think about a buyer persona, most, most sales organizations, when they're enabling the sales organization, they, they, the first step is to arm them with the pitch. And the pitch is the single pitch that they're going to give to everyone that they meet with, regardless of who they are. And then the next step is to make granularities, make different flavors of that pitch, depending perhaps on the level of the person in the organization they're talking to, whether it's a low, lower level technical evaluator or the C-suite uh, person. Then the next step is then to say, okay, now we have to talk to various personas across the organization. We might have to talk to someone in HR, we might have to talk to someone in IT, and then someone in accounting. So, and then the, the, and what you were talking about kind of is the, the panacea of sales and the panacea is where, you know, we, you're not just rigid buyer types, but you're actually judging the person that you're meeting with based upon all of the attributes of their persona. And that is, is the complexity of sales. And, you know, for example, today on LinkedIn, um, 
I saw an article that was forwarded to me by a friend, and it was about how artificial intelligence is, you know, someday will take over sales. I think it's a difficult uh, spot because so much of the sales cycle is intuitive based upon those attributes of the person you're meeting with. Well, based on the actual attributes of the person, not the persona. Yes, absolutely. And I yeah. think that's, yes, I think that's what will keep salespeople employed in in the second machine age we're talking about. I would just add to that too. You know, one of the things that that we are doing here more and more at Discover when we're hiring our own sales uh, sales team is really looking at their, what we're calling, well, a lot of people call emotional um, IQ, right? Their, their EQ as opposed to their IQ to, to Steve's point earlier, there's, it was almost like we, we flipped so far to the sales as a science uh, mentality for a while that this kind of art of sales and really being able to intuitively understand how is the other person across the table or across the phone or across the computer sort of reacting to me and, and how do I adjust and react back to them in a way that's, um, that's going to move this conversation along. That is such a critical part of being a great salesperson today that, that no form of artificial intelligence can ever compensate for, um, that we're actually using that as part of our hiring process. Sure. Well, I think, I think it's a sucker's bet to say things will never happen. But yeah, certainly not in, in our lifetimes. I, I agree that, that uh, <laughs> machines will acquire the emotional life experience to be able to to intuit, you know, this, this relationship. I mean, to that point, though, I mean, I wrote an article in my weekly newsletter a few weeks ago that got great response from people as, you know, I talked about this amazing new sales tactic. It's called going out and meeting your customers face-to-face. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're going to find in businesses like SaaS, like you're in, that the, especially on bigger accounts, you're crazy if you don't go because that is going to be a huge point of differentiation. You know, more and more getting people out of the office yeah, I understand there are cost cost constraints with certain product types, but but that's going to become, I think, an even more powerful strategy. So so let's let's jump into the report. You had six topic areas to sort of call out. Uh, we'll start with risk because you had sort of the one of the more salient facts that that gets quoted from the report is in that section, which is that only thirty five percent of buyers have a favorable view of salespeople. Um, no surprise there, unfortunately. You know, it's interesting, Andy. The, the, if you if you look at the metrics, um, I, I, I you know I wanted to know um, exactly from the buyer perspective how 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 their interactions. I ask I ask buyers when I'm doing my win loss studies. Hey, what's the perception of the six sales reps that you were evaluating? You know that you were meeting with during the sales cycle, and I wanted to have it in a more metric granular. What percent were excellent? What percent are good? What percent are average? And what percent are poor? So about 27% uh, overall across the study rated the salespeople they meet with as poor, 38% were average, 23% were good, and only 12% were rated excellent, which is pretty fascinating when you think about it. When they say, hey, you know, um, what are the, what are the, you know, what are the, what are the percentage of salespeople you meet with? And, and I think that has a significant impact of how buyers perceive salespeople. It's kind of like if, if you know, if you were, um, had a commute to work and this particular, you had two choices to get there. And one of the choices was a very clogged freeway all the time. And the other one was more free flowing. You, 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 you have an association with that particular freeway that's negative. And so I think we have a negative association uh, by buyers in most part, when you think that, you know, almost 62% or so, or I should say um, 65% or so are going to be perceived as average or poor. 
And then that translates into a whole nother um, aspect. And that is, how is it by department? And so when you tear that apart by department, you find that the more technical departments, the more the, the departments that where the people that are more have are more likely to have degrees in the sciences, whether it's um, engineering or IT um, or even accounting, they have a higher percentage, a much higher percentage of the salespeople they rate poor. For example, IT, the IT uh, buyers, 37% of them say that the salespeople we meet with are poor. The engineering buyers, 26, and then the accounting buyers were 20%. So there's there's departmental behaviors as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that having been like the only non-double E in a, several startups, <laughs> I can I can vouch for the fact that engineers think salespeople are are uh, I don't know necessary evils. Um, so, but I th- I thought that was sort of interesting that you sort of bring that back around though to say that that based on their well, they're having more advanced degrees and so on that it actually affected their their buying behavior and their tolerance for risk. Yeah, and that's I think that's the most interesting part because when you when you you know I tried to figure out so what is the impact of meeting salespeople and having this bad perception of them and it manifests itself in the ability for that department or even that industry to take risk. So and it's a direct correlation so to speak. For example, the information technology department had the highest number of perception of poor salespeople, and they also had the lowest propensity to take risk. Meanwhile, on the reverse side of the spectrum is the marketing department. The marketing department had had the lowest percentage of people they meet with that they think are poor, which is 18%, and they had the highest tolerance for risk. And, and I'd be curious, Katie, if you can provide some color on that. Yeah, it's interesting. When I looked at that, the other correlation that sort of struck me across those different departments was not only the types of degrees that they have, but um, the the departments that were more of a revenue center, uh, like marketing, even to some extent product and engineering, had a little bit more tolerance for risk and a little bit more positive uh, view of salespeople, while the departments that typically are more of cost centers are those that showed lower risk. And I think it makes somewhat uh, intuitive sense because uh, uh, there's there's a different type of pressure on a sales process in a department that's a cost center versus a revenue center. And so I think a lot of that plays into whether they're willing to, um, to take that risk. And I think as sales departments, right, as salespeople, uh, we're, we're also part of this revenue center. I think there is a type of approach and a type of language that's more commonly understood when we're talking with other revenue center departments or I'm talking with marketing, for instance, as a salesperson, than when I am talking to an IT department or an accounting department. When I looked at it, there was just sort of one additional layer um, that, that correlated to this inverse relationship between perception and risk. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I actually think it's it's different than that. I think it's actually, in some respects, more simple. And I think that the the risk variant, the variance in risk tolerance has to do with the precision with which the outcomes of the solution can be measured. So in technical fields, in accounting, if you're an engineer and you're specking a part or you know, a network availability or so on, that's measurable. Whereas if you're buying a sales system, technology of any sort, or you're buying a marketing automation system of any sort, it's despite the fact we can measure ROIs, it's it's much 
squishier than than it is. So by necessity and by just by by nature, that's going to be a more risky risky proposition. And so I think there's just that that tolerance is sort of built in there. And I, I think Andy, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that leads into the almost exactly to the next point on that risk tolerance is that if you look at the report, then I have it broken out by industry, and so. At the low, low end of risk, at the very low end of risk, you have government, mm-hmm. you have thing, uh, healthcare, and, and technology. And at the very high end of risk, what do you have? Fashion, entertainment, real estate. So I think your argument also applies to industry as well. Yeah, well, I think it does. And I think it's, you know, when you talked about in the report about the propensity to use RFPs as a risk mitigation strategy. Um, yeah, you just sort of look at the the people in those various industries, right? Is is in the government side, you know, we have RFPs to basically protect against the influence of a salesperson, right? I mean, it's it's to protect the government government's best interests, but you know, why do we have to solicit multiple bids? Why do we have requirements oftentimes to reward to the or award to the the low bidder? They're trying to mitigate the the risk from the salesperson. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right, so let's go to the second topic, um, group dynamics. And this one gets back to the reference I made before about the bully with the juice. And so we're in this, this era where we, you know, it seems like every month or so, CEB updates the number of uh, influencers or stakeholders in the decision. Yeah, it's gone from 5 to 7.8 or 8.2 or whatever it is today. So what you found, though, is that 70% of the time, you only needed to convince the dominant influencer in a buying committee, what you called the, the bully with the juice. So why don't you explain what you meant by that? This is, to me, is probably the most exciting part of the report. But again, I'm a, I'm a fellow who, who studies sales cycles for a living and interviews a lot of uh, decision makers. And the reason why is it kind of, it takes it to, it takes something that I hear about and I, while I'm interviewing people on a somewhat daily basis and takes it to a point where it formalizes it and gives it a metric. And so, so let me explain the, the terminology. You can, you can kind of rank a person's influence on a sales cycle by their ability to what I call bully the decision. Now, that's not a negative term. That's just someone who will tenaciously fight for their cause, isn't afraid to be perhaps even a, politi- a little politically incorrect to get mm-hmm. the solution they want in their in, in their um, organization. And um, uh, conversely, there's someone who's accommodating. And that person is uh, someone who's on the evaluation committee who's more accommodating and, and will go with the flow of whatever decision is being made. And then on the, the other attribute of someone is something called juice. Now, I and I'm using this terminology because it's different. It's juice is charisma. It's leadership. It could be authority. It may or may not be associated with a person's title or their um, layer of uh, authority in the organization. And then uh, on the opposite spectrum, you have what I call the concept of a dud. And that's someone who, it's like a firework who doesn't go off. <laughs> that's someone who tries to get something done but can't. And so I, you know, in studying all the sales cycles throughout all the years, uh, and also as a vice president of sales myself in Silicon Valley for a couple of decades, um, I realized that in almost Every major significant purchase, there is one key decision maker who influences a sales cycle for a particular vendor and and will influence the results set and whether their presence is there on the committee or not. And I call that person the boy with the juice. So what we have is we have a metric here that says, hey, you know, 
there is a bully with the juice, we're going to find that person probably in 80% of the sales cycles. And that person is a key decision maker. And so you're really, I mean, yes, you have to sell to the evaluation team. Yes, you have to work with evaluation, but there is someone on that, the committee who is, for all intents and purposes, the sole decision maker. Well, and to me, what's so significant about this is that this is human nature, right? So it, it, this, this adds common sense to all that's been written about multiple stakeholders, which even in CEB's writing and Challenger books is there's – there's this assumption that, yeah, they're different personalities, but they all have somewhat the same weight, which is just, just human nature doesn't work that way. You get a group of people together, somebody's going to be the dominant person. It's just the way groups work. And so I, I thought this was fantastic. I mean, I, to me, I it wasn't like an aha moment. I knew it, but it was like, yeah, this this is the way life works. And you just need to be able to identify who that person is and what you need to do to make them successful. I was just gonna say, I was gonna say the same thing to me. This was the piece of the the article that was so resonant and so to your point, not an aha, but um, so different than than what we all sort of think we're supposed to do. I think both as a seller and as a buyer, every single one of these decision making processes that I've been on, there aren't six people who have equal weight. There's one person who makes the decision. Yeah. Well, and I think that even if there are which so often are other stakeholders, is I tell people is you need to think of those other stakeholders as people that don't have the power to say yes, but they do have the power to say no. <laughs> and so attention needs to be paid to them for sure. But there is this, this one person that is the dominant influencer, and they're the ones that you really have to influence the most. And, and, and there's, a, there's a fascinating question here, um, and it, it may go unnoticed, but you know the question was, so how what percentage of the time is there this bully with the juice and the committee evaluation committees you're part of? And so when you look at the various industries, it's it, 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 there's very differing, there's some differences by, I'm sorry, by department. But here's the, the interesting part. When, when, the, when the, the, the um, participants were asked, what percentage of time does the vendor, the bully with the juice wanted, uh, um, is selected? And the answer is 89% of the time. So, so it's like, sure, sure, you can say there's an exception to the rule. Sure. And, you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not every a, rule, right? It's so overwhelming that if, and this is something that, frankly, I've been preaching for many, many years. And I, I was, that's why I was excited about this to get some metrics out to say that's it. And that's, and intuitively, I thought it was like 75%. And it's actually a little bit higher than that. Yeah, no, I think I think it's it's fantastic. And and so this is for people listening to this is is this is something you really need to focus on identifying early on who this person is and understand there is such a person. You need to find out. Oftentimes, and I've this is sort of a phrase I've used with with teams I've worked with is you know you're finding the person. And I'd be interested to see maybe if you found this to be the case in your study is there's usually one person who cares more about the outcome than other people. There's somebody maybe has more at stake with the outcome than everybody else. And to me, that's oftentimes been the person who's the dominant influencer. And it's not always intuitively obvious who that person is. Yeah. Human nature is such that people are uh, motivated by fear. They're motivated by ego. They're motivated to by the elimination of pain. They're motivated by being a leader in a group. So you can't, you know, so if we tore this bully with the juice apart, 
you you could say every single instance there's a small little story behind that person because that person is one of the seven billion unique people on this planet. Yeah, yeah. Which back to the point Katie was making earlier about you know the uniquely human aspects of selling. That's what is going to keep salespeople employed if they understand how to how to build those relationships. Okay, so the third topic you had then were vendor market position advantages. So tell us what you were meant by there. Well, this is good news for a lot of people out there, Andy. This is really good news because, you know, um, you know, I work with companies, and uh, most of my companies are are underdog companies that have to fight with the gorilla or the eight hundred pound gorilla, I should say, of their industry. That's sure. a dominant sure. player. Like you have to compete with you know, uh, uh, somebody who has the majority of the market share. What, what the study reveals is this, that you know, of these buyers, if they were going to say, if, you know, and, and, and by the way, when you're leading a salesperson for one of those organizations or your sales rep, it, it can be a day in, day out battle and you can get a little bit, uh, you know, feel a little bit down and, and because you are fighting someone who has more marketing wherewithal you, more market share, is bigger than you, is more sure. established, has installed bases, everything. But the study has some great news, and that is that buyers, you know, only 35% of the buyers said, hey, they, they're more likely to pick the best known, very prestigious product with the most functionality, the highest cost, and the most market share. They're going to go with that industry dominant. Meanwhile, 62% would pick a fairly well-known brand uh, with 85% of the functionality at 80% of the cost. So they would pick a lesser solution. And then 5%, only 5% would pick a relatively unknown solution. So th that's good news because, you know, and, you, and those people should be encouraged because, you know, and they should, they should not hesitate to call on any account if you are the second, third, fourth, or even fifth player in your particular industry. And and I thought, I, so from my standpoint, I thought this was an important part of the study. Yeah, well, the thing that, that struck me, though, about this part that, that I had a question about is that the trade-off seemed to be that if you're the second choice, let's say, in terms of, uh, let's say, market share, that that somehow your functionality is less and maybe your cost is less. And so, because I come, you talk about underdog selling. I mean, I, I spent years with in the valley as well with with startups selling large, very expensive, complex infrastructure communications networks, and yeah, we were competing against all the established players, and we were nothing. But we didn't win by having less functionality. We won by doing things differently, right? Um, so, so I sort of wonder about that sort of idea about that somehow you need to have less. You could win with less functionality. Yeah, you could. But the point, and I agree with your point, Andy. I mean, there's different markets. There's there's different. There's more mature markets and lesser mature markets. And it sounds like you were competing with someone like Cisco, which is always a fun thing. Well, we were but, competing at that time. This, it was satellite. I mean, we were competing with Hughes, Lockheed, Northrop, oh, all those guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, well, the point from the study is this: is that um, the customer is willing to evaluate secondary players, even when those secondary, and for sure, when those secondary players have the same functionality, typically those secondary players are going to be a little bit less cost just by the nature of their position in the marketplace. But they'll even evaluate secondary players with less functionality, which means they're open mm -hmm. to 
they're open to to different vendors. And 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 the reason why I think this is important is because let's say you're competing in Cisco or Oracle or someone day in day out who is a, a behemoth of their industry, you can get frustrated and think that everyone's biased against you. And I think in a way this study says don't give up, keep going, and also never back down from a fight. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Which I think is, is great words. I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that one company in particular is that $5 million company competing on $50 million contracts. Um, yeah, we just acted like a big company. And when we, all the contract negotiations, dealing with the customer and so on, they they seemed a little taken aback because they assumed since we were a small new company, we would be more malleable. So to your point, exactly, is persist, have confidence in what you're selling, and uh, yeah, don't be bullied. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to skip the section on website. Interesting, but not as not as much sort of in-depth revelations in there. So one goes selling style. I thought that was your fifth topic. Um, and you said most buyers prefer, the finding was, most buyers prefer friendly, moderately knowledgeable salespeople over those who are personally cold, but highly knowledgeable, or who are charismatic, but not very knowledgeable. So um, what about friendly and highly knowledgeable? Well, <laughs> <laughs> touché, touché, Andy. You know, it's interesting. Here's here's all I was trying to uh, under. Here's what I wanted to understand from this is that, in you know, I mean, just last week I was doing a, a study on behalf of one of my clients, and I was I was actually talking to key decision makers at at accounts where they had lost, as well as one, and I was asking them about the approach the salespeople take. And, and quite frankly, um, I hear many stories about salespeople having different approaches based upon what they think they have to do. And in some cases, people, you know, and that, that also depends upon the salesperson's personality attributes. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in some cases, some cases, the salesperson is trying to be too gregarious and trying to be over-friendly with the customer, and that turns them off. Yes. And another, Especially prematurely so. Absolutely, because right. think about it. Everyone's trying to befriend the customer at the same time, and it's just it, it's this is not it's just not human nature. On the other aspect, other salespeople are trying to actually change the game, and they're actually trying to um, you know go in there and and for I think you mentioned CEB earlier, they're trying to challenge the customer, and not all people are amenable to that. <laughs> and so and so you have to understand that that you have to tailor your approach based upon the person you're selling to and it can't be a one size fits all methodology. Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean that's that is, you know, people have learned nothing else from listening to my show in general, but this episode in particular, it's absolutely the case. I mean it's it's uh one of the biggest things I th- I think is a problem we see is again with sort of being seeing more heavily scripted salespeople that uh, you know they're not they're not very situational is the word I use right and in their selling style and you have to be well and that's where I thought this section was so interesting to me and to tie it back to this whole idea of you know having to have really high emotional intelligence was that you know what Steve found was that what people wanted from a salesperson reflected their own personality so for buyers who 
prefer to avoid conflict. They don't want a salesperson who's a challenger, right? They want a friendly salesperson who's going to listen to their needs. And as a salesperson, if I've been if I've been taught how to be a challenger right away, I need to be able to recognize immediately that that the person that I'm that I'm talking to is trying to avoid conflict, and I need to adjust that need to adjust that style right away. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's gosh, this whole thing with the challenger. It's it's like it's not that it's not relevant or germane, but the fact is, yeah, I remember I gave a keynote at a, a conference a private equity com- group had put on, and and right after me, a speaker came on talking about how to hire a sales force according to challenger. It's like I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this is this is a fairly small group of people that have the skill set to be able to do it. It's not something that everybody can do. <laughs> and yet we're we're sort of perpetuating the myth that everybody can challenge. So what happens is, to your point, Katie, is people come right in and they don't know how to use it. And so they right. think, well, the first thing I have to do is challenge what the customer's you know buying paradigm is. No, you don't do that in the first call. And also you have to think when we're talking about buyers, you know, there I, I touch on this in the report, and I've done a lot of studies on the similarities and difference differences between men and women in sales. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it needs to be said that there's similarities and differences between men and women buy people who buy, and 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 they have different perceptions perceptions of how someone's approaching them. For example, there's a statement there's a, there's one part of this research that says you know 40 percent of of the 45 um, percent uh, of the female buyers would prefer a salesperson who listens, understands. And then matches their solution to their specific problem, and and so whereas only a third of the men would. So so you you, you <laughs> understanding that there's just a different grand there's different there's there's not just etiquette, but there's just different ways that people perceive how information is being presented to them. Well, I have a little anecdote about this thing about men and women selling is is a company Gong.io that analyzes you know phone calls and and online communication sessions did a study based on I don't know 10,000 calls or some number of calls and with women selling to women men selling to women and so on and what they found is that men selling to women talked more than when the men were selling to men <laughs> i thought oh my god a giant case of mansplaining going on <laughs> when <laughs> when men sell to women right i mean that's what the data is telling you it's like oh my god all right anyway well, I guess I talked about the situational situational selling before. I mean, it's it's you have to adopt and adapt, and um, yeah, this sort of one size fits all just doesn't just doesn't work. Okay, so um, last topic you had was buyer's regret, and you say buyer's remorse is real, but about ninety two percent of the time it's not the salesperson's fault. So, so why do you think that's the case? But you know, um, so a couple things, you know. I, I I just don't think there's any real I couldn't find any real data about buyer's remorse and and buyer's remorse is important because well first of all if you if you land the account the likelihood of them buying again is 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 nil or low but it yeah, also yeah if they have buyer's remorse yeah absolutely of course and the other side of it is I wanted to understand you know again we led this report by saying X percent of salespeople were fundamentally perceived as poor. And, 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 and Andy, you and I work in a world where most of the world thinks of salespeople as being, you know, poor. I, I personally think most of the salespeople I work with and interview are ethical, have integrity and mm-hmm. honest, 
And they're they're quality people who are fun to be around, quite frankly. And so I wanted to understand the cause of buyer's remorse and what and and I and I could I couldn't find any type of study on this. So what I wanted to do is analyze from each of these buyers. I wanted them to explain to me basically and there uh, an instance of buyer's remorse. And then I analyzed that instance to find out the root cause. And then it came out there was about 10 different root causes. And when you take this thing all apart, it turns out that in only seven out of 10 or 70% of the cases, the buyer's remorse was, was caused actually by the actions of the buyer, as opposed to being let down by the salesperson. For example, you know, the buyer didn't did it. They said they thought they did incomplete research, or they thought they made an impulse decision, or they they um, underbought more than they need, or they overbought more than they need. But so what happened is, you know, buyers are sophisticated, mm-hmm. and and when you think about your own last few personal purchases, you know, sometimes buyers make mistakes because at the moment they're operating on incomplete information or they're operating on emotions or they're, you know, have, have, have a time uh, constraint. And so um, I thought that's what was interesting about that because, you know, most of the world thinks that all buyer's remorse is because of some unscrupulous salesperson and it just isn't the case. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, you listed out the three factors that could, you know, they're time press, emotion. I mean, they all play in every deal as far as I'm concerned. So, so yeah, no, I, I, I think part of it though is, is managing expectations. And so I've written about this because I think one of the, the key things, especially in a more complex sale, is, is what happens with buyers. And to me, this is a, what I've seen as a trigger of buyer's remorse is that if you're in a competitive environment, let's say they're talking to five different vendors about something, is that when they get to the point of making a decision, what they've done is they've conflated the, the best features of all five into what they think they're making the decision to purchase. And so they really don't know oftentimes really what it is that is going to be delivered. And so the salesperson really has a requirement to, I think, as you know, as soon as you get an order, especially like I said, something a little larger, more complex is talk to the customer and, and go through the process about review the process, you know, what, what their requirements were, why they, why you bid what you bid, why they bought it and what you're delivering and when, and I find that's a great way to really nip some buyer's remorse in the bud is just resetting again the expectations about what they bought, why they bought it, and what they're going to get and when. Well, and I think a lot of this goes back to I think Steve's, I think it was Steve's early point when we first started around the attention span of our buyers today, right? People are in an environment where they have to make decisions quickly. They have to do their research quickly. They have to implement quickly. And in doing that, they create an environment where they miss a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, or I said they just they they cherry pick the best of what they've heard from everybody, right. and they assume that's what they're buying at the end of the day. Because I, I think that's sort of human nature. You're you're trying to <laughs> trying to make the best of what you're what you're doing. But yeah, it's it's. I think there are steps sales can take, but I, I agree with Steve. I don't think fundamentally, oftentimes, that it's caused by sales, unless there's you know, sure there's cases where there's blatant misrepresentation, but that's I would say that's not buyer's remorse that's you know that's a lawsuit and, and the problem's only magnified when you're dealing with services and other intangible offerings so I, I agree with you andy yeah so very interesting report i mean i i think for people who haven't uh gone to discover org and downloaded it you should um a lot of interesting detail there 
you know, we don't want to be too swayed by this first factor I talked about. Only 35% of buyers have a favorable view of salespeople. To me, this is a problem that's that is a longer term problem that needs to be addressed. And we address some of it through increasing education at the secondary level and people in the sales profession and so on. But, but um, yeah, very, very interesting data in there. Thank, thank you, Andy. It's been, it's been great to talk with you today. And uh, I, I, again, I want to, uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Discover for sponsoring this research. It's it's been, it's a fantastic project uh, project to work on. Excellent. So, Katie, tell tell people how they can find it. The report. Well, first of all, I, I wanted to thank Steve again as well. Like I mentioned in the past, we've partnered with Steve before, and his research and his analysis is second to none in this industry. So, um, thank you, Steve. You can go to our website, which is www.discoverorg.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, and the report is right there, available for download. Excellent. And uh, Steve, if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? SteveWMartin.com. Steve, add the W or you're going to the comedian. <laughs> so if you go to the comedian, have a good time first, then come back to Steve W. Martin. Perfect. All right. right. So thank you both for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. Friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Please come back again. Enjoy another excellent episode of Accelerate. Until then, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>